0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Chad Wilkin, who is using Rails to build a service that helps contractors document their jobs and communicate with their crew. Chad, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your app? Yeah,
1: sure. So I'm Chad Wilkin. I'm the CTO of CompanyCam. Like like you said, we you know we work with contractors primarily um, documenting their job sites and communicate with their crews in real time. Stuff that
0: used to be done via Dropbox, we tried to automate and streamline that. Nice. So when it comes to this application, is it something that they just operate with while they're on the job, like through a mobile app or a laptop or something?
1: Yeah, a little bit of both. So they they use the mobile app out in the field primarily. Um, Some people use tablets, but it's mostly mobile app. And then um, everything syncs real time back to the office, you know, as we call it, but it can be anywhere. uh, And that's to the web app. So as people are capturing photos, it will stream real time into the web app. And um, it allows, you know, project managers to see what their crews are doing out in the
0: field. Very cool. Yeah. So any crew member out there is just taking photos, interacting with the rapper, or whatever, and they can just see that from wherever they happen to be, the manager?
1: Exactly. And it helps them catch problems before they otherwise might have, or maybe the problem just went undetected. Um, and so it can really help save money in the long run.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you are the CTO here. Do you want to give us a rundown of like how this project started? Were you there from day one, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So when I took over, it was an MVP um, that was built by a dev shop here in Lincoln and I was working at another startup at the time, and I met the founder who was still just working at a roofing company, at his family's roofing company. Uh, I met him at a startup weekend, and I was like, hey, if you need any help you know, with contract work, just let me know. Uh, we ended up meeting up about a week later, and I put my two weeks in and just kind of shifted over to working on this full time. And so, like I said, it, it was a .NET-based um, app, and um, I took it over. Uh, really all it did at the time was just just take photos. Didn't really do much else uh, on top of that. And um, we started building on it, and the rest is kind of history.
0: Nice. So since you took it over, how long has it been up and running for?
1: So it's almost
0: seven years now. So it's about just shy of seven years um, that we've been running. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, do you have any like interesting stats about what's been going on for the last seven years? Like, I don't know, like number of photos or like interactions or events that come through your platform? Sure, yeah, so we have um, about
1: 380 million photos that we store presently. Um, we take in about 800 new, th- 800,000 new photos a day. Um, we're handling about 80,000 requests a minute. All those photos are captured at about 25,000 new projects a day. So a project is like you know someone's house or a business,
0: for example. Right, so what you're saying is uh, it is very well trafficked because that sounds like a very busy site awesome.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of fun stuff that we've had to figure out along the way, you know, as we've grown.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we're going to definitely get into some really good stuff tech wise, because it sounds like there's multiple very interesting things I want to get to. But before we get into that one, I wouldn't mind just chatting about, you know, what was it like moving from .NET to using Rails? Like, what was your motivation for choosing Rails if if you were, you know, decision maker on that one?
1: Yeah. So uh, I, I, I knew .NET and I was okay in .NET. It was you know ASP um, what was the ASP.NET MVC, I think four at the time. Um, I knew it, I could get around in it, but I just wasn't comfortable in it. And I had read a ton of books and dabbled a little bit and done a little freelance work in Rails. And I just loved it. Um, you know, It was really focused on developer happiness, uh, everything. I was just sold on it. And so Part of me accepting a position at Company Cam, I was like, "All right, I want to be able to rewrite this in Rails." You know, it's just a, um, you know, an MVP right now, so it's not like there's a ton of code. And so what we actually did was we rewrote the API um, in Rails, and so Rails connected to the existing um, SQL Server database, and that was a little bit of a challenge. But I was able to connect to the SQL Server database using Rails, and then we just in one swoop, we just moved everything over to the Rails API and left the web app running on .NET. But that was just using, you know, that was just connecting to the API as well. So it was pretty seamless, honestly. Um, And we didn't have a ton of traffic. So any little blips that we did have, it it wasn't like it was catastrophic.
0: Right. And when it came to porting over the new app in Rails, did you kind of just like open up the app in .NET in whatever editor kind of like on monitor number one and then monitor number two, you kind of just like, ported things over like function by function or did you end up just like rewriting everything kind of uh
1: we rewrote mostly everything i knew that i wanted to change you know that um dot net has some different standards or you know like they they use pascal case uh if i remember correctly for their like json and i wanted to use um camel case or snake case and so we did little things like that where we would change you know some of the standards that we were using or some of the So we did rewrite everything. It wasn't like we were just totally copy-pasting. And that also gave us a chance to clean up some of the, just like the things that they called things didn't exactly make sense um, as we were learning how our users referred to things. And so we were updating things like that along the way as well. Right.
0: So if you had to like measure this on a scale of one to 10, like, do you prefer the idea of rewriting something just like the process of actually rewriting something or actually designing something from scratch? Designing from
1: scratch is, in my opinion, it's always a little bit easier because you don't have to keep things working, at least depending on how you do your rewrite. You know, people like Basecamp, for example, they, you know, they rewrite the entire app and then they keep their old apps running and then they, you know, they add the new apps. Most people don't have that luxury. And so, you know, starting from scratch is definitely going to be easier because you don't have to worry about that backwards compatibility. My preference is definitely Greenfield. uh, But, you know, as software developers, we're not usually lucky enough to have that. So You know, I just kind of worked with what I had
0: and it ended up being just fine. Right. That's always good to hear. Now, this application you mentioned, you just swapped out Rails into the mix here to deal with the API. Is this all set up then where you have just an API backend with Rails where the front end is using something like React or Vue or something else?
1: Yeah, that's correct. For the most part. So we have an internal admin tool and that uses just like traditional Rails, you know, views and controllers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the main web app that our customers are hitting and the mobile app, they consume um, a mixture of a REST and a GraphQL API.
0: Oh, nice. And when it came to like that decision of going, you know, maybe the Rails way with server render templates versus splitting out an API, was that because you wanted, you knew for a fact, like for sure, like the mobile experience you needed to be first class for the contractors out there on the job?
1: Yep, that's right. So mobile is like, the web app is kind of secondary to the mobile app. The mobile app is where you know the vast majority of stuff is not only created but also pretty much consumed as well you know these contractors they're in their trucks driving around all day from various job sites and bidding things out and all that kind of stuff so they need to be able to see stuff you know on the fly and it can't really be an afterthought so we're we're definitely mobile first um in fact mobile has more features usually than the web does so uh, we we went with react native on mobile and then react on the web app and they consume the same apis and a lot of the stuff where they do share the features, you're able to reuse, you know, queries and portions of the code, which is really nice.
0: So going back to the native app experience there, do you want to just like walk us through what, what that was like to deal with React Native? Because that's something I haven't used firsthand, but always is interesting to see how that works. Like you mentioned, you can reuse quite a few things like queries and whatnot, but can you reuse any of that stuff on the front end as well? Like between the web app and the native app?
1: I know some people do. Uh, we don't. And I, I don't really have a great reason other than it seems almost like unnecessary complexity oftentimes we have shortly or minorly different views or icons and just things that are a little bit different between mobile and web sometimes we might show more info on the web because usually you have a bigger screen uh, and so trying to not only detect what platform you're on and how big the screen is and you know a million different things we actually just chose to keep them separate you know I think in a perfect world you would do that but uh, I, I think it's often Quite harder than people imagine.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm actually brand new to the smartphone ecosystem, but yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different like screen sizes, and like now there's like phones that like fold in half and stuff like that. Like, the, it feels like there's like a million possible combinations of how things might work or look.
1: Yeah, Android adds a lot to the mix. Um, and, you know, honestly, even iPhone does as well. Simple things that you don't really think about, but when they introduce the notch into the phone, Um, you, we had to create a view that was like a notch aware view. And so it knew how to avoid the notch on the iPhone. Um, so just little things like that, that you don't really think about, but, uh, react native, you know, I, I swear by it's one of the best technologies I think that we've ever chose. We were completely native before that. Um, and we, we moved it over piecemeal just by testing screens out, you know, okay, what would the signup flow look like if it was in react native? Um, but now that we're fully, we're a hundred percent react native. You know it's something that i would never change
0: that's cool to see so like fully React native means there is not a single like native component written with you know whatever ios or android uh programming language you would use it's it's all served from React native like not even like the navbar and stuff
1: kind of so th- the camera and things like that where you have to interact with native apis react native has what has what they call a uh, a bridge so you can bridge through to native code and so we do that for things like the camera um, we have some drawing utilities so you can draw on photos and annotate them um, that bridges through to native um, but for the most part almost everything is you know react code
0: nice so you bring up a good point like about the drawing stuff do you maybe want to go over like some examples of what type of screens that you have both as you know maybe the contractor on the job as well as the manager just checking things out on the back end
1: sure yeah so everything starts with like a list view um, and it will show you nearby projects or recent projects um, and so a lot of these contractors, you know, they're working at a dozen projects a day or they have people working at a dozen projects a day. So most things start on a list view so you can see kind of what's going on. Then when you jump into the camera, by default, it's gonna show you the projects that are around you. Um, So that way, uh, you know, you can, if you're at Joe Schmo's house, you know, it knows roughly where you're at if you've already created a project there. If you haven't, you can create a new one. And we use Google's APIs to try and guess where you're at. So then, uh, you know, we wanna make it as simple as possible. So you can just tap, tap, tap. Take a photo. So once you're actually on that photo screen, you can capture a photo, and you can have quick photo mode where it just goes straight through, doesn't ask you to draw anything or do anything else to the photo. Um, or you can you can go into annotation mode. So you can draw on it. You can put some measurements on there, maybe, or you know highlight like a problem area. You can add comments and tags, and then you can actually mention. So like one use case is maybe there's a leak or something. You could circle the leak mention someone at your company they immediately get alerted and then they can respond back to you and that's kind of how we help people out is by you know speeding up that communication and the person that gets mentioned they just pull it out uh, they tap the notification takes them right to that picture they can see you know what the issue is and respond back and say oh yeah definitely you know make sure you um you know replace that and we'll bill it to insurance or whatever
0: yeah it's kind of crazy as someone who is not like you know super into contract work type of things but yeah, the idea of just being able to take a picture and like annotate it and show it to someone else, it, it saves the whole entire round trip of like someone else having to actually go on site. And like, that could be like a multi-day thing now solved in like literally like 10 minutes.
1: Oh yeah, and it's, you know, we, we hear all the time, like we save people, not only in, in these ways, we save them lots of money, but um, a lot of times things like, you know, uh, a roofing company will drop a dumpster off at your house and you don't notice that your driveway had a crack on it until they drop that dumpster off and then they take it away. So a lot of people will photograph the job site before they even do anything. And it kind of saves them uh, because, you know, then the homeowner's like, hey, you cracked my driveway. It's like, no, you know, here's proof that before we showed up that there was a crack on the driveway. So yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that we didn't even like realize people would use this for. And, uh, you know, but now we hear about it all the time. So it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, very cool indeed. Now, as a CTO here, do you actually develop in your day to day both the back end and the front end? Or do you have things split up maybe with like different employees working on different things?
1: Yeah, it's pretty split up anymore. Like I, I don't get a code um, as much as I used to. Uh, you know, I, I do a little bit here and there. Um, but yeah, so we have, I want to say about seven teams now working on product features. And that's, we have what we call backend engineers, or, you know, we don't call them that, but most people call them backend engineers. And then we have client engineers. And so most people haven't heard that term, but that's what we call like a react developer basically. So they work on the clients. So the, the react front end of, of the web app, and then the react
0: native app uh, on mobile. Okay. And when you have things split out like this, it- is everything just in like one repo or do you have separate repos for each service? If there even is multiple services. Yeah. So we're a single, we're a monorepo or, or sorry, we're a monolith, not a monorepo. We're a monolith.
1: Um, And then we have the web app, all that code lives in one repo. So we have um, the back end code and the front end code in one repo. And then the mobile app is its own repo. We do have a few other repositories that get pulled in. Um, Like we have like our own event tracking library, uh, things like that get shared between native and the React front end, and so that's another repo um, that we have as a sub-module that gets pulled into both of those as well.
0: Okay, and then for the Rails side of things on on the back end, do you want to maybe go over like some specific Rails features that you might be using, like you know Action Cable or like maybe uh, Active Job and whatnot?
1: Yeah, sure. So the you know the Rails ecosystem we, we're using less and less of um, anymore. Just as we've grown, we've you know a lot of the Rails standards haven't really worked too well for us um, or they haven't scaled with us, I guess I should say. So we use the Interactor pattern. It's a gem as well with the same name uh, and that's where we isolate almost all of our business logic. Um, And then on top of that, we use whisper instead of active record callbacks. And so when you call an Interactor, for example, it can publish that something happened and then whisper will handle that either synchronously or asynchronously using sidekick. So we use sidekick and active job um, as well.
0: Okay. Do you want to maybe go over a couple of examples of, you know, some shortcomings you might run across using uh, active record callbacks to move to whisper? Like I haven't used that one firsthand. Like what did you run into where you're like, oh, we actually need like a third party solution for this.
1: There was a lot of times where you would do something and, you know, it might be, you know, after commit, run this callback on create, for example, and then and then it's on create. But if it's if it has this attribute and we, we started hitting more and more of those just because we have somewhat complex workflows where it made sense for us to choose in each interactor if we wanted something to happen or not. Um, and the interactors are heavily reused. So it's, it's not like we have to remember to publish these events in a whole bunch of different places. And and for us, it just, it just greatly simplified things. Like you can go into an, into an interactor, see what event it publishes. And then you can see anything that's subscribed to that event. Um, so it's actually pretty simple. Um, it sounds a little more complex, but we had so many like conditional callbacks that it was just kind of callback hell for us.
0: Right, and this this gem entirely fixes that then? I mean, it, it sounds like it gives you more functionality to where you can cleanly, I don't know if you would associate them as like where conditions on your callbacks, but something like that, right? Like on create where, like the username equals this or something. Exactly,
1: yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Okay, cool. And then also just like on the topic of the back end with Rails stuff, do you run the latest stable release of Rails or something else? We're
1: on 6.1 for Rails, and then we run 2.6 Ruby. So we have a little bit of room to grow on Ruby, but um, that one, we're, we're in the process of, um, we'll go, you know, I'm sure we'll go into this later, but we're in the process of changing how we deploy. And so we've kind of paused doing major upgrades on Ruby for the moment.
0: Okay. And then have you been keeping tabs on the upcoming Rails 7? I only bring that up because... I think the bare minimum now is going to be Ruby 2.7.
1: Right, yep. So we definitely have to catch up pretty quick. I'm not too worried about it. We're almost there with those changes I was talking about. But yeah, we've, uh, we've been keeping an eye on some of the newer features that Rails 2.7 is going to add and uh, a little bit excited for some of the things like encrypted attributes and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely, I don't know. I don't want to say, oh, it's a game changer, but that definitely is going to make things quite a lot easier to deal with certain types of clients where they want everything encrypted at rest. Like doing that by hand was just extremely difficult.
1: Yeah, definitely. Especially things like that you don't think about too. Just we have, for example, integrations and storing those API keys. If you can just do that very simply and, you know, it's built into the framework, you know, you can rotate the credentials, all that kind of stuff. Um, That's just going to be so much easier.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of like integrations, do you want to go over like some uh, third party sites that you integrate with and like how it works with your app?
1: Sure. Yeah. So we integrate with quite a few different companies. Anymore, we push mostly for them to integrate with us because um, we're building out some web hooks. We have a We have a pretty decent public API that um, is documented pretty well. And so most people integrate with us. We do have some integrations that we write to integrate with other people. Zapier is like a really common one that most people have heard of. Um, so we integrate with Zapier and that kind of acts as a hub so that people can do you know more stuff that they want to. Uh, for example, someone creates a project, you can add it to a spreadsheet or you can text somebody or you can you know kind of do whatever you want. Uh, and then the ones that we integrate with um, things like Hover, Jobber and like Hover, for example, they do aerial measurements of roofs. And so it's a really quick way for someone from the office to get a call from a customer. They type in the address. They can digitally measure that person's roof. They get a report in company cam. It tells them, you know, how big the roof is going to be, all this other stuff. And they can bid that whole job without even really going out to the
0: customer's house. Yep. welcome to the future, basically. Exactly. (laughs) That sounds awesome. I love stuff like that where you can just basically automate. No, I don't want to say like automate someone out of a job, but just, yeah, just using technology to the maximum extent, I guess.
1: What you're saving there is like a salesperson, used to have to drive to every one of these houses. If you can bid, you know four times the number of jobs that you used to, then you can grow your company a little bit more efficiently. So it's not even necessarily that you're, you know, cutting jobs, you might be adding jobs in the long run, just by simplifying the stuff that used to be tedious.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Now, before you just mentioned that you do have a public API, do you find that a lot of your clients or customers actually use that? Like, it's interesting to me to think like, you know, a contractor company or something like that would just have like people on the payroll to like develop a web app behind your API.
1: What I learned through this journey is that contractors are a lot more technical than a lot of us give them credit for. A lot of them have developers on staff. Um, you know, they have their own custom workflows, and that's what I think a lot of them hire developers for. Is they, Everyone's kind of a little bit unique about how they run their jobs, you know, all the way from getting the first phone call to, you know, after the job is complete and thanking the customer and asking them for reviews. And so what they found is that a lot of these project management tools, um, don't necessarily cover the way that they want to work, and so they'll hire they'll hire their own developer, whether it's in house or or a dev shop. Um, and so, yeah, we actually do get uh, quite a bit of custom integration with our
0: clients. Interesting. Do you want to go over like some? You don't need to get into like specific clients of who who is interfacing with your API, but like maybe like the types of apps that they're building, like custom workflows, and it's yeah, maybe also just touch base a little bit on um, yeah, just like how you treat your API. Is it like on the same level as Stripe or like you have, you know, really good documentation and like a client SDK for different languages? Yeah, Stripe's definitely
1: like the, uh, you know, the Mecca that everyone's shooting for. That's, they're, they're really good though. So it's really hard to keep up with them. But uh, we, you know, we use readme.com to help document it. And that works really well to, you know, to enter or to answer the first question. uh, A lot of the people that are, that are building apps, it's mostly project management tooling. Um, So, you know, it's, they get that first phone call. Like I was saying, that whole flow I kind of told you about. Um, they're writing their own custom project management tools. I would say that's probably 90% of it. And the rest is a lot of custom backups. So, you know, not everybody trusts, you know, startups. And so they'll have it where every day they're, they're kind of syncing all their photos back to their own service, for example. Uh, but yeah, we use OAuth 2.0, the code, you know, the code flow. So they'll, they'll click on integrate. It will take them to company cam. They sign in, you know, accept it. We kick them back over to their site and uh, and then the integration's complete.
0: Nice. Yeah, and on the topic too of just like potentially backing up data and whatnot, do you have anything built into the normal app that you have where folks can just like export certain things in a specific format, like CSVs for certain
1: data? Yeah, you can definitely dump an entire list of all of your projects, and that gives you like the name and the address and you know the coordinates and all that kind of stuff. It will dump those to a CSV. Uh, and then we do offer the ability to back everything up nightly to your own S3 bucket so if you you put in, you follow some steps, put in your credentials, and then every night we run a sync job and just push all your photos to your S3 bucket. So that way you have them if you should ever want to leave us or whatever. You know, we don't want to hold data hostage.
0: Yeah, that's really cool to hear. Like, I love it when companies go the extra mile. Like, actually, I think you might be the first person on the entire show where... Yeah, not just exporting like to a CSV or whatever, but like actually offering to dump everything to an S3 bucket. It makes it super easy to, you know, maybe folks like me who are like super paranoid about that stuff. It's like you can't make it any easier to back up uh, what's there. And that's
1: really the goal, you know. Like if we're doing our job as developers, it should be a you know a pleasant experience. People should want to pay to use your app, and so you shouldn't like only have them using your app just because that's where their data is and it's impossible to leave. Uh, and so we try to go the extra mile, you know, wherever we can and within reason, you know, but. For us, it's made a lot of sense.
0: Right. And when it comes to features like that, like, you know, dealing with backing things up to S3, like, do you have a specific team who just deals with those type of like integration type of things or no?
1: We do have an integrations team. Um, they they didn't write the S3. I actually wrote that one a couple years back now. But uh, yeah, we do have an integrations team. And, and I suppose if something were to go wrong with it, they would probably be the ones that would have to fix it.
0: Right. So before we move on and talk a little bit more about, you know, other things that are a part of your tech stack, like databases and, and things like that, do you want to maybe just rattle off a couple of useful gems that you might have used besides the two that you mentioned before around like callbacks?
1: Sure. So Whisper is a great one. Um, you know, I know I said that one, but that one's fantastic. Um, let's see, you know, Devise we use pretty heavily. Uh, we have a little bit of custom integration with Devise. We've tried a couple of the dry RB gems, but quite honestly, I love the Virtus gem. It's it's no longer maintained, but um, it works really well for us. And uh, we use that for building custom input objects. Uh, and so it has like attribute validation and coercion and stuff like that. And so I really love that one.
0: Nice. And then for like, you know, you mentioned you are dealing with tons of photos being uploaded on a regular basis. You know, that that does each one of those uploads end up hitting your Rails backend? It does. Uh, Kind of,
1: we don't process it on the rail side, but we do, it, it is uploaded directly to S3 and then that URL where it was uploaded, the, the object ID is pushed to our API. And then we pull that down and we extract a little bit of information out of the photo. So we read the EXIF and we pull the GPS coordinates and when it was captured and some other stuff. And we just check that with what we have in the database. And we have a way of just, you know, reconciling if one is incorrect or if somebody's trying to dupe us, we will actually show the actual time that something was created. So, you know, like people use it for time tracking and stuff like that. So we have to be a little bit cautious. And so we'll show them if there's discrepancies in those in those numbers. Um, and then from there, we, uh, we fire off a couple requests to Lambda and Edge, and that eagerly resizes the photo, which we can go into that, you know, as much as you want to. Uh, and then we mark it as processed, and then fire off an event, and that sends a webhook to uh, everyone connected for the company and then they get the photo in real time on their device.
0: Very nice, and that webhook though, that's also being sent out from the Rails app? It's not like a separate service or it is? It is
1: a separate service, so we use um, Pusher. They handle the client and the backend. You just call an API on their side, it's super simple, and then the clients are connected directly to their backend as well, so you don't have to handle all of that load and complexity. Uh, And and for the cost, it's a no-brainer in my
0: opinion. Right, it's one of those things where you add the Pusher gem, and you basically write like three lines of Ruby to, to push a website. That's that's <laughs>
1: exactly right. And we actually use it with GraphQL subscriptions as well. They have a pusher integration. And so it it's you know served us double fold.
0: Yeah. That's cool to see that you're able to leverage like third-party services like that one. But yeah, maybe we can go a little bit into detail about that Lambda that you have set up there. Is that just more Ruby code that you've written to process the images, to make thumbnails and whatnot?
1: That one's actually JavaScript. Uh, but yeah, it, it uses the, I believe it's the Sharp package. Um, and so... Lambda at edge is kind of cool because you can intercept a request at four different points. And so we're able to check when the request first comes in, if it's already been, um, resized and, and cached. And if so, we can just return that straight away. Otherwise it can go to the next step. And then we actually fetch it from S3, resize it to a couple different sizes that, um, are being requested. And then we write it back to S3 in it's resized form. It gets cached and then we send it back to the client. And so that all scales horizontally as well. And that alone has allowed us to scale to where we have um, so much easier than when we used. It used to be a Ruby process where we would um, use image magic and actually resize all the photos as part of that job that I previously explained.
0: Right. And then in the previous life through Sidekick, or were you doing that through Sidekick? Correct. Yeah, Sidekick. Right. Speaking of Sidekick now, like what other types of jobs do you run through there? We run a ton through
1: Sidekick. I, I don't have the exact stats, but we run millions and millions of jobs a day through Sidekick. So... Um, a lot of those whisper events, those callbacks I was talking about, almost all of them are async. So they actually just get queued into sidekick and then, and then are executed asynchronously. So we do a ton of those every day as well as, you know, the standard stuff, sending emails, dumping reports. Um, yeah, all, all sorts of stuff like that.
0: Okay. Now talking about standard stuff, maybe do you want to get into like how you deal with accepting payments? Cause I mean, we didn't get into this, but I would imagine it's like a paid SaaS app.
1: Correct. Yeah. So yeah, it's a paid SaaS app. We use Stripe, um, In my opinion, there's
0: no one better, they just make everything so simple. Right, do you wanna go over like what your experiences were like to work with them? And and also maybe like what type of Stripe API endpoints you're using, like do you use their checkout feature or do you kind of do all, you know, basically like their custom integration for payments? Yeah, we
1: do a custom integration. So we use customers and the subscriptions um, endpoints primarily. Um, And so we even create subscriptions for our free users that are, we do a freemium model. And so we even create, a free subscription for our freemium users. So that way it's easier to upgrade later on and they'll, you know, track the trial end and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, The integration has been pretty good. There are some weird things where like webhooks sometimes will come out of order. And so you just have to make sure that you're like always setting your customer to the correct status by either calling back out to, to Stripe or to make sure that you know you verify some stuff in your database to make sure that they should be transitioning to whatever state you're about to transition them to. But previously I had worked with Authorize.net at a different company. And so I can hands down tell you that Stripe is a million times better than any other solutions provider that I've worked with.
0: Right. And a million might even be an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> potentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: <laughs> that's for sure. No, I wish we could. The one thing that I wish that they would add, and I'm really hoping that they do, is a way for users to be able to know what subscription they're on and what upgrade and downgrade paths they can take. I think if they made that next step, they would be the company to end all companies. They would just go through the roof because they could handle literally every part of your billing then.
0: Yeah. That would help, uh, very, very, very much. Speaking of Stripe, though, when it comes to integrating it with your app, did you just end up just using their Ruby SDK straight up? Or do you use like a third party? I don't know, like a rails specific gem or no?
1: No, we just use, yeah, we use their their gem straight up. And then we, we do use Stripe event, that gem. Um, and that handles the webhooks and it, you know, it makes sure that they're um, actually sent from Stripe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so those two put together really are all that we needed.
0: Okay, so I have not used that event gem. Does that just like verify the signatures and whatnot, just to validate that it's really from Stripe without doing like a separate API call to it them? It does
1: that. And then it also, um, you can tell it what events to subscribe to, what webhook events, and then what classes that gets mapped to. So you can have like a handler class um, or proc, I believe as well um and any and then so you know so you might get payment dot created or something like that and you can tell it to call this specific class and that will pass in the event payload and you can kind of handle it then however you want to
0: Ooh, yeah that sounds pretty useful for sure now earlier you did mention that some components of your app are more like you know the rails way using like server render templates spe- specifically around like your admin backend. do you want to go over like that process or more generally like How much time do you invest building your own like admin backend, you know, like a real like super admin just for you guys as a company versus like customer features?
1: Yeah, we don't spend a ton of time um, building our own admin tool. Uh, You know, we do add like most of the time if we're launching a new feature, um, we'll add a way to make sure that, you know, our customer support and sales team, they can see, you know, it might be how much it's being used or maybe they need to be able to view and edit data if a customer calls in with some problem. Uh, So we don't spend a ton of time. And honestly, that's because Rails helps you be so productive when you're just within their ecosystem of, you know, standard Rails views and controllers and all that, that it does make some of those things just so incredibly easy. So I would say we spend maybe 5% of our time developing our own admin tool versus 95% of the time doing, you know, bug fixes and feature work,
0: right? Yeah, it's a nice ratio. And in terms of like bug fixes and feature work, does that also include like writing a reasonable amount of tests as well?
1: Yeah. So um, I wouldn't say that we're test driven. We're not test first or, or anything like that. Like each developer, basically, as long as your feature comes with specs and the specs are covering what you wrote, that's good enough. We don't care if you, you know, write the specs and then write the feature or, or if you write the feature and then write the specs. More long as long as you have that coverage, that's what w- we care about. So everything um, on the back end, at least, has feature specs or, or specs that come along with it.
0: Okay. And then in terms of just like, you know, preventing bugs, hopefully during the deploy process, which we'll definitely get into more details about later, but in development, like when someone pushes up a new, uh, potentially a new feature branch or something like that to open up a PR, do you then just have other folks look at that?
1: Yeah. So we have like a code yep, review. Exactly. We do code reviews through GitHub um, and each, in order to merge into main, you have to be able to, uh, or you have to have one approved um, code review as well as all of the specs have to be green, RuboCop has to pass, um, and, and yeah, I believe that's it.
0: Okay, and in terms of like RuboCop, do you use the default configuration or do you have a, a custom config? Or... We have a
1: little bit of custom config. We use most of the default stuff. Off the top of my head though, I couldn't really tell you what we've customized. It's just, there's a handful of rules in there for things that are just, I think more from when it was mainly just me working on it, where my preferences that have kind of just held over now and no one's really complained about, so.
0: Right. Yeah, it's always fun we, when you get to make those decisions. And then when someone asks, you're just like, no, that's what yeah. I did. And it's going to be like that no matter <laughs> that's what. That's <laughs> exactly. Uh, but on the topic of like linting, though, do you do any linting work on the front end as well, like using ESLint or something Yeah, else? we use
1: ESLint and that. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. That's the other one that has to pass it. Anything that gets changed um, as part of your commit will get run through ESLint as well. Um, so we haven't always had that in there. And so it's only checking files as they're being modified. Um, so that way we can catch things, you know, as we're changing them.
0: Right. So before we go on to just going over the tech stack stuff, do you just want to round things up with like giving us like a maybe a high level estimate of how much code do you think you've written on the back end versus the front end? Because it's always super interesting to hear about these apps that are split up.
1: Yeah, we've written, um, you mean like as far as like lines of code?
0: Yeah, or maybe module counts, like doesn't need to be super specific. So
1: yeah, I ran this about a week ago, but we have about 115,000 lines of Ruby code. Uh, and that's just application code, and then seventy five thousand lines of JavaScript on the web, and eighty four thousand lines of JavaScript on mobile. So it's it's pretty hefty.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, it's also seven year old application, right? So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to build up. Amazing success story, right? Like you build us up this up this app, and here we are seven years later, hundred thousand lines of code, and like millions of uh, events happening. It's so. cool. Yeah, it's a little surreal. Do you think you're going to run with this? Then, I mean. Basically, hopefully it never ends, but this is your goal to basically stick with this as long as the ride is uh, here for it. Yeah.
1: You know, it's kind of funny. I tell people all the time that it's almost like another kid of mine where it's like you you put so much into it early on. It's like you, you know, you formed it and you you really helped it grow. And now it's like, you're kind of seeing you know, as you start hiring more developers, it's like, you're seeing it off to college, you know, and it's, it's kind (laughs) of funny, but yeah, I I would love to stay with, um, with this as, as long as, you know, the company's around, Uh, because i i enjoy it day to day we have a great team and the the product is fun uh it doesn't you know it's kind of weird like you wouldn't think the contractor space is very fun but we're one of the rare companies in the space in my opinion that actually cares about like ux and in the customer itself that it, it actually is pretty joyful you hear a lot of like you know nice things come back from the customers so that helps
0: yeah for sure now You bring up that kid analogy though, but hopefully it never gets to the point where you need to like rewrite the application. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's true. That's very
0: true. Now, tech stack wise though, you know, mentioned you are using Sidekick. So probably using Redis in combination with that. But do you want to go over things like what types of uh, databases do you use? Like even if there's more than one or just Postgres? Yeah, we
1: use a couple. So we use um, Postgres on RDS for the most part. And that's where like almost everything goes by default. And then we actually use Mongo um, as well. And Mongo was kind of an interesting addition. We added Mongo because we were hitting some scaling issues with the way that we query images and videos out of Postgres. Uh, and so we use Mongo almost as like a an active data database for our images and videos. And so we query Mongo and it only has a very minor subset of data that we need just to filter. And then we actually pull the records out of using Active Record, out of um, Postgres, and then return that down to the user. Um, and so we do that, and then we have um, Elasticsearch. I suppose you'd consider a database, and then we use Redis, not only just for Sidekick, but for storing things like counts and um, is a little bit of a cache as well for like unread messages and stuff like that.
0: Right, and for setting up those caches, there, do you just use like the built-in Rails features for that, like Russian nested dolls? Uh, yes.
1: For well, for the, for our actual caching we do for, um, we we actually run an, a separate instance of Redis and we use Redis objects to connect to that, to, excuse me, to connect to that. And that's another gem as well. Um, and that one's been pretty cool. It gives you just like a, um, a nice DSL to have attributes stored for an object in Redis.
0: Ah, very cool. Also just going back to what you said about Elasticsearch, do you wanna go over maybe some areas of your site we're using features from that. Like, do you do full text search or other components of Elasticsearch? We use it for a couple different things.
1: We, we do full text search. So we have like a global search on our app and you can go in, you can type anything and it will search um, projects, comments, um, reports, all sorts of different stuff, users, and it will give you that in one big view. And then you can kind of further filter down from there. Uh, the other place we use it is on most of the project listings. Um, so we use it for geolocation based searching we use it um, to get stuff where maybe you were a contributor to a project. So we actually use it for quite a few things when it comes to like searching for and returning projects.
0: Okay. And then in terms of like keeping some of that data synced up for the Rails side and potentially in Postgres as well, like what types of gems do you use for that? And like what types of challenges did you have just keeping that data in sync? Yeah,
1: that, it's it's a little bit challenging. Um, we use Search Kick and Search Flip. Um, Search Kick handles most of the you know, writing of the data to Elasticsearch and keeping it in sync because it just ties in with Active Record so nicely. Um, And then we use search flip because it has a little bit more of an expressive API that we were able to expand upon to do, to use um, like nested fields on Elasticsearch. And so the combination of those two have allowed us to do everything that we need and they work pretty great.
0: Cool. Now speaking of flips, for whatever reason that jiggered something in my mind to think about like feature flags, do you happen to use any, any of that on your site? I do.
1: Um, we use flipper is the name of the gem that we use. We're actually looking at launch darkly at the time. Cause flipper, there's just a few things that we needed to do that it doesn't. Um, and so launch darkly looks like it does do the things that we need, um, or at least most of them. So we're investigating that right now. Worst case scenario, we might have to write something ourselves. Um, the hard part there is the mobile app. Sometimes we'll put a feature flag out in a version of the mobile app, but if we were to turn it on and someone was still on that version of the mobile app, it could uh, break or give them like a very diminished experience. And so we need the ability to not only filter by the flag being on, but users being on a very specific version of the application or, or a version greater than or equal to you know X.
0: Ah, yeah, that's a really good point that you bring that up. I'm curious to hear like what type of bookkeeping do you do to make sure that you know what version is deployed that you know someone might be running on their mobile device or whatever versus the latest version that's deployed? Like do you like send that over in a header or save it in a database somewhere?
1: Yeah. So the the version, um if you use launch darkly, it it's handled automatically for you, um, because you install their SDK, but Currently, we do send the, the version of the app over in a header. Um, but right now, we we still have, a, a, I would say, a degraded experience. If you're on an older version of the app and we toggle the feature on, you'll get that version. We don't have a way to filter presently. But LaunchDarkly handles a lot of that for you um, just due to the fact that they have an SDK then running in the application as well.
0: Right. Okay. And then in terms of like potentially other uh, tech stack components, like do you happen to run Docker either in development or production?
1: So we run Docker in development. And we use another tool called DIP, which is really great. Um it, it just, it takes a lot of the Docker compose and Docker commands and it makes them super simple. So you can just run like dip up web app, for example, and it can spin, you know, it can spin up the app locally for you. Um, so we use Docker in development and then right now we are transitioning into deploying containers in production as well. Uh, and that's been a little bit of a project, but that's what I was mentioning earlier. Um, I forget what we were talking about, but I was talking about how we're changing our infrastructure at the moment. And so that's it. We're just moving to AWS, um, Fargate.
0: Oh, Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that very soon. Kind of curious to hear more about Dip though. I haven't heard about that one. Is it like supposed to be a higher level abstraction over Docker Compose, or is it a completely different tool that just uses like Docker's API? Uh, it's
1: it's. I would say it's more of a tool above Docker Compose, just to make the command a little simpler. Um, and then it also has like one command that, where you can run like a provision command, and that tells you like. So as a developer, you can just run Dip provision, and it will set up the development environment for you, or the whole doc. You know, build a Docker container and maybe you run it, want it to run database migrations and create some indexes and do X, Y, and Z, you can script all of that out as part of the provisioning process. And then the only thing they have to do after that is just dip up and, um, you know, whatever else, you know, run the web app or whatever.
0: Oh, okay. So it almost gives you like, I guess you can call them almost like hooks. Like after up, do this thing. Like almost like what a Docker entry point would do, but more control. A little bit. I. It's more of a
1: command line. It's just more of a command line tool to help simplify getting rid of the, you know, like, So you don't have to remember to do like dash, dash, remove orphans and all those kind of things.
0: Oh, yeah. Dash, dash, remove orphans. (laughs) Got to do it pretty often once in a while. Okay. So, yeah, we'd love to talk a little bit more about how you have things deployed. Maybe you can start off like what your current infrastructure is like at a high level and then like what you plan to transition to. I know you mentioned Fargate, but maybe you can walk us through like, you know, the hows and the whys. Sure,
1: yeah. So right now we have... We have an application load balancer, and then behind that, it hits NGINX. So our SSL terminates at the load balancer, hits NGINX, and then NGINX, in turn, um, routes that traffic to our web applications. And we, Right now, we have, I believe, just three instances. We're running um, the M4 10X large. So we run three of those, and those are beefy machines.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but... I know they're definitely big boys, but uh, how much memory and CPU do they have roughly? They have 160
1: gigs of RAM and 40 virtual CPUs. So it's it's a big machine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because I was like, whoa, like thinking like only three machines and all of that workload. But now I understand. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. For us, it made more sense. We used to have smaller machines and more of them. And it actually, I believe cost wise and just efficiency, it, it actually worked out to go with fewer large machines. And then just run a bunch more workers.
0: Cool. So sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. Go Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, so then we have the web app, and then the web app and our workers communicate via Redis. So you know any job that gets pushed into Redis will then get picked up by the worker servers. Um, and so the worker servers are kind of isolated by themselves. Nothing really has like an interface to them. Uh, we have, and then the web app obviously can reach RDS. Uh, like I said, Redis, uh, Elasticsearch, all those other things um, are really only accessed directly from the web app. Um, backend.
0: Okay. Now for all these servers that you have set up manually, do you want to go over how they were set up? Like, do you just SSH in there and like run some commands or do you have it like set up with maybe Ansible or other configuration management? Yeah. Tools? So I
1: knew early on that we wanted everything to be automated. So originally everything was automated with chef. There was a great book. I can't remember the title of it, but I think it was like uh, rail running rails in production or something like that. And the guy told you how to set everything up and use chef and all this other stuff. I liked it, but I didn't really like chef. It just had kind of a weird API, and I just wasn't a fan of it. So we switched over to Ansible, and that's what we're still using to this day. Um, So yeah, we we use Ansible to configure everything, and then we use Capistrano to actually deploy the app.
0: Cool. Yeah, interestingly enough, I had the same exact experience with Chef. Like When I decided configuration management was a thing I was going to do, I actually started off with Chef as well, because I'm like, well, I know Ruby, and maybe it's going to work out. But for whatever reason, just didn't click with my mind. But as soon as I switched to Ansible, it was like... In one weekend, I felt more productive with Ansible than I was with Chef throughout like my entire months of using Totally agree.
1: And I, I thought the same thing being a Rubyist. I was like, oh man, I'm going to love Chef. Yeah, but no, Ansible has been great.
0: Yeah. It's also pretty cool to see you differentiate the idea of provisioning a server like using Ansible, but then also deploying the application. Because I'm also, I feel the same way. Like in my mind, those are two completely separate things like yes, I'm gonna use Ansible to set the machine up so I can deploy to it, but the actual deployment step is a totally separate yeah, thing.
1: Yeah, and we actually go a little bit further too. So we use Capistrano to even configure stuff that the web application needs. So not like packages or things like that, but log rotate, for example, because in my mind, it's like the the, the deployment process knows about the application and that's okay. And it knows about the requirements of the application. Uh, and so it knows what logs it might write and other things like that. And so Um, we actually took it one step further, um, and, and do a minor configuration that pertains specifically to the application as well using Capistrano.
0: Okay. And then for things like log rotation, as you transition to the new infrastructure with like Fargate, are you sort of kind of rethinking how you might handle logging in general, like making sure you don't log to disk, but instead to standard out and then like letting other tools deal with that?
1: Yeah. So that's part of some of this new discovery. Um, right now we log to, we log to disk and then Datadog syncs it over, um, I honestly don't have the answer to how we're going to do that with, with containers. It still may just be um, you know, tailing standard out and piping that over to Datadog. I'm not 100% sure on that part yet.
0: Right, yeah, there's lots of options with that one. But before we maybe even talk about that, when it comes to these servers here, do you want to go over what Linux distro that you chose? Yeah, we
1: use Ubuntu, um, and I don't—I can't even remember the exact version we're on. I think we're one major version behind right now, or one LTS version behind right now. So we actually got to get caught up. But like I was saying, since we're moving over to containers, and the containers we're using the most recent versions of the distro, um, and so we just haven't—you know—updated yet.
0: Right now. When you do move over to using containers with Fargate, do you plan to use ECS or EKS? That's like basically managed Kubernetes or like their own ECS? Yeah,
1: we're, we're using ECS. Um, and I this is where it gets a little bit outside of like my knowledge zone. I actually, um, I brought in some, we hired DevOps people just because I knew, or infrastructure people, um, just because I knew that this was like a little bit beyond my capabilities and it's something where we need people focused on it heavily. Uh, and so, uh, this is where it gets a little bit outside of my wheelhouse.
0: Okay. And when you brought in those infrastructure folks, did you bring them in as like full-time employees or just like contract?
1: Yeah, work? full-time employees. Uh, one And maybe it's like, it's a little controversial, but I almost always try to hire rather than contract, even if it's harder to get the person or it may be cost a little bit more. I just feel like everyone's incentives are aligned when it comes to like, you know, they want to keep their job and they have equity, for example. Uh, so it's in it's in their best interest to just make sure that everything is as good as it can be. Uh, and I've worked with contractors in the past, and some are really great, but then you have others that are just there trying to, you know, do as little work as possible to get the paycheck. And so, whenever possible, I'm always trying to hire.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a good point. That's like kind of a side topic. Like I don't really usually talk about that stuff on the podcast, but it's interesting because yeah, I just started a full time position now at a company doing ops work where I spent the last two and a half years working for them as a contract worker. So I was just curious to see on your end like how that went.
1: Yeah, it was. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know. Asking people questions about stuff that you don't really know can be challenging, but uh, I feel like we found some great guys.
0: Right. Actually, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Like, you you know, you say the ECS stuff is a bit out of your wheelhouse, but like, what did you end up chatting uh, with them about to determine like, this is the solution that we're going to end up using in the end?
1: Uh, we actually hit, it wasn't so much about what we chatted about initially is that it was that we had a few issues in production where had it been a new container that was being deployed, it would have been solved. And, and I... It, From what I remember, it was, we were upgrading a version, like a major version upgrade of Sidekick actually. Like half of the servers, it worked okay, half it didn't. and But you didn't know that until like jobs started piling up and there was like some zombie processes and then the new, like it was just pure mayhem. And it was just because like, even though we have most of the stuff automated, there was minor differences between things on each instance of this, on each server instance. And so it was like, okay, it makes total sense for us to containerize. And you know that if you can ship one thing that's built and if it comes up, you know, it's good. So that's when we started talking about containerization and ECS and those kind of things.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a great use case because I mean, when you're dealing with millions of jobs a day, like, like mayhem is about the last thing that you want to have to yeah, deal with. It,
1: that one was not fun.
0: Yeah. Cause I would imagine yeah. I mean, mayhem could be hundreds of thousands of jobs in that processing. And I mean, I, customer experience wise, like that could prevent people from continuing a uh, membership, right? If that's like their first interaction. With your exactly.
1: And, you know, even worse than that is like sometimes our, our sales team will be on a demo and then things go down and they have to sit there and try to explain like, oh, this isn't very normal for us. And, every, you know, I'm sure the people on the other line are like, yeah, sure. It's not, you know, but uh, <laughs> luckily we didn't lose anything that day. You know, it was, everything was still being pumped to Redis just fine. It was just the jobs processing them. So yeah, it definitely didn't look good for us, but we were able to get things back up and get it all resolved and it it worked out. But it's definitely more stress than was needed and it can be solved, so why not solve it?
0: Right. Now, speaking of Sidekick one more time here, we didn't go over this one, but do you happen to use the open source version or do you use like the Pro or Enterprise Enterprise version? We paid
1: for Pro. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly why. I think it's the, they have on Pro, they have the uh, safe push and safe pop from what I remember. So like on the open source version, when it pulls a job off, if the job or if the process crashes, that job's lost. Whereas on the pro version, I believe if the process crashes, the job isn't lost because it's still in Redis until the job checks back in and says, okay, now you can delete it.
0: Right. Which I think sounds like it would be very, very important to be why you didn't lose all those jobs when mayhem struck because it was still saving. Exactly.
1: Yep. And honestly, I just love supporting, you know, um, Mike, he's a, he's put so much out there for free that, you know, that I think it's like 900 bucks a year that we pay. It's totally worth it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, like mental note, need to get Mike on the show here if he's interested because I'd love to hear how he runs like his own licensing server oh, and yeah. stuff. He's interesting would be fun. Now on the topic of AWS here, do you want to maybe go over some specific AWS services that you're using? Like you mentioned, you know, using RDS for Postgres and do you happen to also use like Elastic Cache for Redis or anything else? Yeah, we else? do.
1: We use Elastic Cache. We use their Elasticsearch service. Um, we Almost anything that we can pay to have a hosted version of, we will, um, just because less headaches for us, you know, as long as that service is working as it's supposed to. So, but yeah, so we use S3, um, EC2, RDS, uh, we use their application load balancers. Um, we're getting ready to use, you know, ECS and Fargate. Uh, and then um, we use like their, you know, simple email service. I'm sure there's a couple of others, others that I'm forgetting, but we use quite a few Amazon services, Route 53.
0: Right. Yeah. I was just going to say probably Route 53 also. Do you use uh, their CDN as well in front of S3? We do. Um, yeah. Cloud so front? we use
1: CloudFront in front of S3 and and then like I was saying, CloudFront's um, Lambda at Edge as well.
0: Uh, right. Okay. Cool. Maybe now we can talk a little bit more just about like your overall deployment process. You kind of talked before about, you know, you know when a feature branch gets pushed or whatever, someone will do a code review, but do you want to walk us through like what it's like from development going all the way to production? Sure.
1: Yeah. So you, you branch off of master and then um, you do your feature work, uh, you know, and that can take however long. Uh, and then you push it up, you get your code reviews, you test it on QA, um, which is Quick aside, we have a, a, a nice little feature where if you add a GitHub tag, it will spin you up a whole QA environment. Um, so you can test your feature and our, our QA um, engineers can test it as well. And then once you have your code reviews, it, you know QA gives you the thumbs up, uh, you merge it in. Then we have a tool called BuildBot, um, are build, a tool that we use, we didn't develop it, but a tool that we use called BuildBot. And you go in and you choose the production builder. You just hit a button and then it deploys master out to production. Um, and it, you just get to sit there and watch and it will kind of tell you the status as it's going. Uh, and like I said, that uses Capistrano and Cap- Capistrano, um, you know, compiles the assets and, and up you know, make sure that all of the new gems are installed and all that kind of stuff as well.
0: Okay, and that build bot tool, I haven't used it firsthand. Is that like completely separate from your CI, CD pipeline? Like it's just like you need to push a button to do the actual deploy. It
1: is, yep. Yeah, we don't we don't automatically deploy. Eventually that's where we want to get to. Um, we're just not there yet. So it is a separate tool. We use um, CodeShip for our, um, our CI continuous testing. Um, and then once everything's green there, then you can merge it in and, and use BuildBot, which is a separate tool.
0: Right. Yeah. It's always interesting to try to go like full blown, you know, continuous deployment where really anytime someone pushes something, it eventually makes its way into production without any human intervention. But I'm curious also how this relates to you, because we didn't get a chance to talk about secret management, but like a prime example of how completely automated deploys sort of fail is like when you need to go in there and update, I don't know, like an environment variable, right? Maybe add a new one that your app references, like someone needs to do that, like outside of being able to push code because it's not going to be part of your code base probably like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Right
1: now what we do is um, so because there's such sensitive secrets in there, like Stripe and some of those kind of things um, I I still add all of the production secrets to our rails. We just use the rails credentials, um, which are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so we'll add those in there on master. And then I push that up and then they pull that back down into their branch, Um, but they can add them on the QA and development environment.
0: Okay, now in terms of just deployment in general, would be interesting to hear. Like, did you run into, like, how did you arrive at your exact solution? Now, like, did you run into some pain points before that? Where, like, well, maybe we should introduce this step because it really helps us.
1: As far as like testing and stuff like that goes.
0: Yeah, just in general. Like, I would imagine, and maybe I'm wrong here, but uh, before you arrived at this current pipeline like maybe certain things were a little bit hard to do or maybe it caused uh, some regressions like things got rolled out accidentally like how did you arrive at this and like end game solution that you're yeah at now?
1: before well so before i used capistrano and i would actually deploy from my terminal you know just command line and uh and that got old after a while especially when you start pumping you know 10 15 deploys a day um and people were pinging. they're like hey can you deploy yeah 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 i'll get it you know that got kind of old so then that's when when jeremy one of our infrastructure guys came on he, uh, he set up build bot and automated that so it would just run um, on an AWS instance. And that was fantastic. Um, and then you know, running the continuous or running the tests um, as part of the um, pull request process was great because then you already have your specs green, whereas before as part of the deploy process is when I would actually run the specs and make sure that everything passed before the deploy went out. Uh, and so that really slowed things down, especially when you have something like a hot fix, where it's like we really need to get this out, because they were, all, you know, they would run on on CodeShip, but then they would also run again when you were trying to deploy from your command line. And so we were able to get rid of that step during deploy because we know that they're already green from CodeShip.
0: Right. Now that actually reminds me too, like when you transition over to using containers, like you know, a lot of the value there is like, well, you can build a container in a certain environment like CI. And then it's like, then you can just promote that to your staging server, but it's still going to be the exact same image, maybe just different environment variables or secrets. And then likewise, but production again, same image, not changing, maybe just a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, secrets being changed when it comes to maybe running your tests in CI. Do you happen to test your things right now in such a way where maybe that image would be different, I guess, like you might build your images with like a certain set of libraries that only exist when you're running tests, but wouldn't exist in you know the production image itself that you build. Like, are you going to end up like basically you know dealing with two different? Yeah, images? we
1: definitely have a little bit of room to improve there, and I'm hoping that that's one thing once we're fully um, containerized that we can transition as well. Uh, because we use we use Code Chips. Oh, I can't even think of the name of it, but they have almost there's it's almost Docker Compose, uh, but they have their own little flavor of it. Uh, We use that to spin up our services and we have, excuse me, had a little bit of issue where the testing container gets just a little bit different from our local development container. And so specs will like pass or fail on one or the other, but not the other. Um, And so that, that's really hard to like debug as well. Um, So hopefully we'll be able to reuse our containers just all the way down the pipeline, but I still think that that's a little ways out still.
0: Okay. And in terms of like just debugging in general, When it comes to all the developers that you have on your team, do you guys all use different operating systems based on personal preference, like macOS versus Linux or even WSL on Windows?
1: So for the most part, I would say the vast majority are using Mac, um, Mac macOS, and then um, we have a handful of developers that are using Ubuntu or a Linux distro. Um, And we haven't noticed anything significant, especially because we use Docker for development, um, other than the fact that Linux is way faster and doesn't resource hog like Mac Docker does.
0: Yeah, that's always uh, definitely a pain point with macOS and Docker. For whatever reason, like the volume mounting is just so much lower. Yep. But price to pay, I guess, for the convenience of having containers and images. Now, on the topic of just like planning for maybe disasters or unexpected events, do you want to walk us through what it's like to back up all of your data, like on various different databases or any user uploaded files? Sure,
1: yeah. So we have, so S3, um, we have replicate real time from US East 1 over to Oregon. And so that's happening every time that a new file comes in, it just automatically pipes over. Uh, and then as far as databases go, we have snapshots, you know, we can, we can restore to point, like, I want to say we have one second point in time recovery for like a week. And then after that, um, it, it goes by day. Um, but we have, uh, I want to say it's every six hours we have a full snapshot done. Um, so we're pretty eager, uh, about it. And, you know, just because losing data is like the ultimate no, no. Um, so we go a little bit overboard on that. And then we also do, you know, offsite backups as well.
0: Nice. And for those offsite backups, do you just like take a SQL dump, take the SQL file and put it somewhere? Yeah, exactly. Like outside of AWS? Okay. I'm curious though about those snapshots. Do you also go through the motions of maybe cloning the production database and then putting it into QA based on one of those snapshots? Yeah, we do that
1: on a a rolling basis and they're actually improving that right now where it will be just totally automated. Um, But right now we do it about every six weeks where we'll take a production snapshot and a Mongo snapshot and then we um, restore those back to QA. And it's actually a little bit of a challenge because of the way I was describing how we use Mongo. You actually have to kind of stagger them. One has to be a little bit older than the other one for it to work um, properly.
0: Right. And on the topic of that, though, like when it comes to maybe developers needing to debug an issue... Do they end up having like raw access to production data or does it go through some like redaction process where you might remove certain fields or anonymize them?
1: So we don't we we anonymize some things Uh, for the most part, though, you have most you have most of the production data. And then if you need to actually like check data in production, um, a lot of times, like I was saying, we have our own internal admin tool so you can get at it that way. Or we actually use Blazor in production as well. And so if there's like a query that you need to ran someone that has permission um, to access prod data just you know unfettered can go in and run that query and you know give you the whatever result you might need
0: nice and on that topic are you looking forward to like the Rails seven changes around that one where you can have like a complete audit log around who might be running like a rails console against a production yes instance? that's
1: going to be so handy not that we like and the thing is it's like it's not even like we don't trust people but it's just you you know accidents happen i've made accidents and i've accidentally like messed up billing before you know stuff like that and it's you just want to know like what happened and, and by who. So that way you can just be like, hey, what did you run? It's not a big deal, but you know, how can we fix this?
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's like a way to reverse engineer the problem, not so much like keep tabs on everyone because they're bad. Exactly.
1: People. Yeah. We have more important stuff to do than, than keep tabs on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, in terms of just like overall, you know, keeping track of uptime and trying to avoid bad things happening, uh, where do you keep all of your logs stored? And also, do you have anything set up for like error reporting or notifications if something goes yeah, down? Yeah, so we
1: use Datadog for logging um, and they're pretty great. We actually use them because of a little hack for us personally. We have really big logs, and most places charge by size, but Datadog actually charges by uh, event or like number of logs, and so we 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 a data Datadog and we pay them about twenty one hundred bucks a month, um, and and so it's not too bad for the volume that we do. And then uh, as far as like um, uptime and APM, we use Scout for that, and so they'll send us alerts as well if like the site goes down. Um, and then for error tracking, we use Honey Badger. Uh, they're like they're so cheap. They're like 200 bucks a month, but they are by far some of the best money that we spend. They'll send you you know, alerts about new errors, recurring errors. After it hits like a new threshold, they'll check your site to make sure that it's up. I mean, it's just one of the best tools out there.
0: Yeah, it's definitely brought up a lot in the podcast. I'm curious though, not because I don't think it's a bad tool, but did you end up comparing it to like maybe Sentry, like you know A versus B, and what made you you choose that I one? I tried in the a end? few
1: others, and they were okay, but I don't know. I think I just got used to like the Honey Badger UI, the way it integrates with Slack, uh, just all those things. Everything combined just made it enticing for me. It's not that those other ones are bad, you know, for example, but uh, it, it's just yeah, it was just the one that kind of felt right.
0: Okay, and then in terms of like things like Slack, I'm curious. Do you have any of your apps people or regular developers that are just being notified if certain things go yeah, wrong? Yeah, so we
1: have a couple channels in Slack. We have um, we have prod alerts and that's where Honey Badger reports the production errors. And so you can click through and then see, you know, what where that where the error was happening and, you know, get some more context there. And then we have a perf alerts channel as as well. So, you know, if there's like some slow queries coming from Scout. Uh, or slow endpoints then then you can be alerted about that kind of stuff and go in and investigate
0: very nice and in terms of that just like investigating things potentially going wrong uh do you do like an on call rotation between anyone like the ops team or even developers we do it's
1: only during uh business hours though so anything after hours is myself and the ops team um uh mainly it's just kind of investigating and doing some of the initial legwork to see like oh okay it looks like maybe this user was trying to do this weird thing and that's why you know this error popped up versus you know oh my gosh this is you know a catastrophic meltdown we need everybody on on board
0: right and for things like on call happening after hours with the ops team do you guys just divvy that up like someone's on for two weeks someone's off for two weeks do they get like extra compensation for being on call believe
1: it or not it's not like super common for errors to pop up so right now it's mainly just all app errors boil up to me and all infrastructure errors just go straight to, um, the two people that are on the ops team. And, um, luckily it doesn't happen like all that much. So we don't, yeah, we don't have any extra compensation or anything, whatever we interviewed about it. People are all, people always said, no, I mean, that's just kind of part of the job. So it is what it is. And so uh, that's just kind of how we treated it.
0: Yeah. It's kind of cool too. As like a person who is into ops, it's like, I'm going to do everything possible. So I don't ever get woken up at like 11 PM or 2 AM because exactly. It's like, I'll do everything to basically automate myself completely out of the job. Like now I can just sit there and do nothing. That, that'd that be amazing.
1: Yeah. For you to be as reliable as possible or for your what you write to be as reliable as possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Chad, it was really nice talking to you here. Do you want to go over some of your best tips and lessons learned from building out this platform? Sure, sure. Um,
1: you know, one of the big ones is, is like design patterns actually matter uh, a lot. I know that probably seems like intuitive, but having not having like a million of them and just having a few that everyone kind of knows are what you use in the app that really helps focus on efficient caching you don't want to cash too much but you also don't want to cash too little so kind of finding like the right the happy place you know for for how much caching you need is is really important and that can save you a bunch of time and money uh and then sometimes it's okay to say no you know so uh external partners always ask for more um same for you know people, product managers stuff like that they're always asking for more uh you know, try to, Try to help people out as much as you can, but sometimes uh, you know, it is okay to say no.
0: Ah, on the topic of that, when it comes to like customer feedback, like someone just reaches out to you and asks for a feature, do you like run that through the whole company or do you wait until like X amount of people request the same thing? Like, do you have any systems in place for that? Like when to figure out what to yeah, build? It's
1: it's not perfect. So we have a product inbox channel in Slack as well. And so the people that are, you know, the customer support people that are working with the customers every day, they'll post the requests from customers in there. And sometimes you will start seeing themes and it's like, okay, maybe we should start investigating that. And that's when a product manager will pick it up and and kind of take it and investigate it and, you know, push it across the line if it's something that we want to actually put into the application. Uh, but, you know, we, we have a good vision of where we want the product and the company to go and not all of those things fit in there. You know, like you might get a big enterprise request, for example, and it's like, well, that just doesn't make sense for us um, versus something where it's like, oh yeah, we never really thought about that. That totally makes sense.
0: Right. Yeah. It's always an interesting like line to draw, even based on like saying the no, right. It's like this one really big enterprise client might, might come at you with like a really beefy, you know, high five figure, like annual thing, but still just saying no, just because it seems like it's not a great idea for the company.
1: And actually I'll say one other thing that I learned, um, or a piece of advice is that big customers aren't always more money because sometimes they take, you know, a lot more resources as well. Sometimes just going after the smaller people, you can make a, you know, a really nice living, really nice app um, that's targeted at you know, individuals.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You definitely don't need to get into like specific financial, uh, like how many people are subscribed to each tier or something like that. But I would be curious if you don't mind answering this one, like what is your percentage between your monthly bill on AWS and maybe the income that the the company generates? I don't know
1: if I have the exact number. So we spend about, we spend about 38,000 a month on AWS, which is quite a bit, but I know that we make multiple fold more than that. So uh, I I guess I don't have that exact stat for you. Um, but we have about eighty-three thousand users. So
0: Yeah. Was not anticipating thirty eight thousand dollars a month in AWS. That's uh that's kind we, of a lot. Well, so
1: we spend a lot of money on QA, honestly. Um production is quite a bit and S three is actually a very big part of our spend. We we don't really ever delete anything out of S three, and so you know, that bill just keeps going up. Um, but we spend a lot of money so that people can have QA environments that are, you know. Very production like. And so we spend a lot of money on that infrastructure.
0: Right. And that seems like money very well spent because, like, that is the thing that's really, I would imagine, preventing a lot of things rolling out to production that might be broken or like a migration fails or something. Exactly. That's
1: exactly how we view it.
0: So, Chad, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Anytime. So, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah. I
1: mean, if you just want to check out CompanyCam, companycam.com, we're hiring for all positions right now. Uh, So if you're you're looking for something, we're here.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop links to that in the show note. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.